Matthew chapter 4, we've, we've kind of concluded the uh, temptation of Christ. And then we begin in uh, verse 12, and I just want to read our text for us this morning, and then uh, we'll share some thoughts on it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of uh, Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, one thing that uh, we can't do without here in our society is light. If the sun were to go out today and just never shine again, we would be doomed as a society. We'd be doomed. The earth wouldn't have any way to thrive at all. And the one thing that Christ speaks of himself and others speak of Jesus Christ is that of his character being that of light. And I just got some definitions of what we think of, of light and got it out, out of the, the, the Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary. And some of these are kind of inter interesting. It says, something that makes vision possible. That's true. Have you ever been in such darkness that you can't even see the hand in front of your face? Um, when we go up to see the grandkids, you know, one thing they enjoy is their flashlights. And especially Mason, because when he goes to bed, sometimes he gets to take his flashlight with him. You know what that means. He doesn't have to sleep. He gets his little train catalogs and his car catalogs and some books or whatever, and he makes a little tent out of his covers. And, and you know, you go in his room, you see this little glow, orange glowing thing in the bed. And what's him under there with his flashlight? And, you know, we have lots of fun with, with flashlights and things like that. And, and they realize that without that light, they couldn't see. Another definition is the sensation aroused by the stimulation of the visual receptors. Third definition, electromagnetic radiation of any wavelength and traveling in the vacuum with a speed of about 186,281 miles per second. That's what light is. Such radiation, another definition says, that is visible to the human eye. Spiritual illumination. Then it goes on and talks about public knowledge and different things, a particular illumination. But when we stop and we think of light, I want us to think this morning of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to think of what He meant when He said He is the light of the world. And this morning as we look at these couple verses, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The very beginning. Thirty some years old and He's just getting into the, the ministry that, is, that His Father has called Him to. But in the New Testament, there's a, there's a variety of verses that speak of Jesus Christ as a light. And I put them down there for you in your, in your outline. And we're not going to go over all them. But one, John 1, we read this morning, In him was life, and the, light, the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, John the Baptist bore witness of that light. Later on in John chapter 3, 
He continues to say that this, he says in, in 319, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of Christ. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. Isn't it funny how at night you can go out and if you've ever done a ride along with police officers or anything like that at night, usually Friday night's a good time to go because there's all sorts of things happening when we're home you know, in our beds, safe and sound. There's all such a crazy stuff going on. Why? Because evil enjoys darkness. They hate the light because they're exposed. That's why we got our campus at night lit up like a Christmas tree. It doesn't do much good sometimes, but, you know, a lot of times you walk by and you see this glow here because we got every path lit just to avoid vandalism, things like that. He who practices the truth, John goes on, says, comes to the light that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. And Jesus himself said he is the light of the world. Interesting note on that verse in John 8, 12. Uh, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know, when Jesus spoke those words, it was in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And see, the, the, the treasury, uh, the temple treasury was in the outer court, or it was called the court of the women. And uh, Jesus was there at the conclusion of what they called the Feast of the Tabernacles at this time. And that feast, the Jews used to gather together and they would celebrate what they called the illumination of the temple. And they'd gather together on these series of days and they had these massive candelabras filled with candles and they would light them. And it was placed in the middle of the court of the women. And for a week, this great stream of light just shined out continuously from the temple outer court to commemorate that pillar of fire that God led them, led Israel during the wilderness wanderings under Moses. And as Jesus entered that court of the women, the light had just been extinguished. It was the end of that Feast of Tabernacles. And the candelabra was probably still in place and you could probably still see smoke coming up from those extinguished candles, but they gave no light. And Jesus declared that he himself at that moment was the light of the world that would never go out. And you know what? It must have just struck the hearts of his hearers at that time to see these massive candelabras be put out at the end of the feast and then Jesus walks in to that courtyard and says, I am the light of the world. Even though it's dark now, I am the light of the world. In the Old Testament... Walking in the light is often used as walking in righteousness, walking in obedience to God. And walking in darkness is what? Is, a, is an illustration of walking in wickedness or disobedience. And Jesus basically came into the world and he says, basically, everything that is righteous, everything that is godly, I am the light of that. I am the light of the world. And it's important for us to remember that because as we, we see here in our text this morning, the subject of light comes up in those verses that were quoted from Isaiah. But you know, after the fall of mankind, one commentator points out that God basically left two candles for us to see by. Two candles. One was the candle of creation. The Bible says that you can look around at the creation that God has made and say, boy, someone must have done this. I mean, it's just a natural conclusion. I mean, how can you, how can you look around at, at even your own human body and the incredibleness of our, our creation and say, ah, I guess it just happened. 
You could never conclude that. That would be like walking into a car dealership and looking at a brand new car there in the showroom and saying, gee, I wonder how this thing got here. And concluding that no one must have built it, that would be ridiculous to think that. It must have just kind of got its parts together and nuts and bolts and sheet metal and formed itself. And after millions and billions and millions of years, it just popped into a car. Silly. But when you look at creation, creation is so much more intimate. It's so much more detailed than, a, than a, even a, an automobile. How could we ever conclude that it just happened? So he left the candle of creation. He also left the candle of our own conscience. You know, sometimes when we do something wrong, even before I was a believer, when I did something wrong, God reminded me in my conscience. I knew it was wrong. I just knew it. You know, you take a little child and they disobey you. They know what they did. You know, uh, being bad isn't a learned behavior. It's, it's just behavior. And so it's important for us to understand that God left these two candles, the candle of creation and the candle of conscience. But unfortunately, man has kind of extinguished both of, both, both of those in their own mind. And they said, you know what? I'd rather walk in darkness in my own corruption, Romans 1 says, given over to my own lusts and all that, than acknowledge that God is light. And it seems like people have had a uh, just an insensitivity to God in our society today. And we're, that's what Satan's goal is, is to make us insensitive to the things of God. And he's definitely accomplishing that. Well, Jesus Christ came into the world to make us sensitive once again to the aspect of sin. He came to restore life and health that sin has destroyed. And he came not only to reveal the darkness that sin causes, but he also came into the world as a light that overcomes darkness, the Bible says. How do you describe darkness? Darkness is the what? It's the absence of light. That's what darkness is. And so Matthew introduces this ministry of Jesus, this active ministry of Jesus, and he sees himself, Christ does, as this great light that has dawned upon mankind. Now it's interesting to understand that sometimes when we read our English-speaking Bibles and we're standing here and we're, we're reading verse 11, the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered to him and then all of a sudden, Jesus heard. You know, somebody came up to him and, and he heard that John was put into prison, so he began his ministry. Well, in between those two verses, beloved, there's probably about a year's time. And the other Gospels fill in that blank for us. If you go over to the Gospel of John, Luke, other areas, you can see where that fills in. There was a lot of things that happened during that time. During that time, John continuously yielded to Christ. It wasn't like after Jesus' baptism, John said, okay, I'm done, see you later. He continued to minister. He continued to preach. See, a lot of people don't believe that, or don't, don't re, aren't reminded that Jesus and John the Baptist, they really had, at the beginning, parallel ministries. They were both ministering at the same time. And you see how John begins to pull back from his ministry as Christ's ministry increases. You see this mainly over in the Gospel of John. During that time, John gave progressively greater testimony to Jesus as the Messiah. 
For some three days, Jesus had remained near the Jordan where John was baptizing. You remember the first day, he spoke of Jesus as he who comes after me, whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And then the second day, he ups it a little bit and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God, he proclaims. John the Baptist does. The third day, once again, John declares, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then it says the two disciples of John who were with him left John the Baptist to follow Jesus the Christ. In effect, John was saying the Messiah has come. And this is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And finally, he says to his own disciples, you know what? You don't follow me anymore. You need to follow the Messiah. You need to follow Jesus. And those two disciples of Jesus, one of whom was Andrew, now became disciples of Jesus. And so John was that bridge, John the Baptist was that bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he completed his service, he himself would soon say, even to Jesus in John 3.30, he must increase, speaking of Christ, and what? I must what? Decrease. During that first year of Jesus' ministry, John continued to preach and their ministries kind of overlapped. But as John's work began to phase out, Jesus' work began to build. And during that year's time, lots of stuff happened that's not here in the Gospel of Matthew because it probably doesn't relate directly to, to Jesus' kingship. And that's what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. <coughs> but over in the Gospel of John, you can read about Jesus' first miracle that happened during that time between those two verses between 11 and 12, the wedding at Cana, his cleansing of the temple in John 2, his testimony to Nicodemus in John 3, and then final, the, the public testimony of John the Baptist in, in the end of chapter 3 there, and Jesus' ministry in Samaria. Well, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, picks up the story of that first year where the Apostle John leaves off. Giving three features of Jesus' early ministry that we want to look at this morning. And we can even model our own ministries after these, this example that Christ laid down for us here in Matthew 4. He says in, in verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, that's when it started. He didn't start two years ahead of time because he was eager to get something done. He started in God's time. He started at the right time. It was God's timing. See, sometimes we, we get so caught up in ministry, we forget that, you know what? God's the one pulling the, the strings here. He's the one that's setting the agenda. It shouldn't be us. Sometimes we need to wait on God. Sometimes we need to hear the voice of God and get busy because we're falling behind. But it all takes place in God's timing. And in Matthew's presentation here, basically Jesus' official ministry began when the one who heralded the Messiah, John the Baptist, went to jail. That's when his official ministry began. And you know what? That's what I like about Jesus. His timetable was always a divine timetable. It was always a timetable that was based on what the Father wanted. It wasn't based on what Jesus wanted. Kind of like he had a, a, a divine clock in his, in his human body that just reminded him and constantly said, don't do what you want to do, do what the Father wants you to do. 
In Galatians 4.4, Paul affirms, he says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. It's according to God's timetable, not ours. Jesus spoke in the Gospels of His time not having come. The hour has not yet come. And then in Matthew 26, He says, Well, the time has arrived. Well, it's not His time. It's the Father's time. Jesus chose not to use His supernatural powers to accomplish these things while He was here on earth. Now, He accomplished a lot of things with His supernatural powers, but He didn't accomplish things necessarily that could be accomplished by ordinary means. He submitted himself to human limitations, the Bible tells us, because he had a human body. And you know what? He knew what was in every man's heart, John 2 says. And yet it says there in verse 12 that when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison. So it was only when he heard it of John's arrest that he went back to Galilee. And John was taken into custody by Herod. He's thrown into a dungeon and eventually he was beheaded. But it's, it's important to understand that Christ did things on God's timetable. And that's a lesson for us. We need to sometimes pull back and say, God, is this your time for this or not? We can't always just be forging ahead and, you know, with blinders on saying, I don't care what God's will, it's about my will. I want to do this. I want this to happen or whatever. And sometimes, when you choose to kind of wait on God's timing, it takes a little slower for things to develop. That could be true in anything. It could be true in getting a promotion at work. It could be true in a relationship. It can be true in a marriage. It can be true in trying to have children. It can be true in a lot of different ways in our lives. But we have to yield ourselves, especially in ministry, to God's timetable, not our own. And John the Baptist knew how the evil the society was at that time, and he continued to confront evil and moral wickedness of the day. He stood up to it, and eventually he was beheaded for it. Similar bravery, John Knox of Scotland stood ground against that corrupt monarchy and standing before the repressive and corrupt Queen Mary, who just rebuked him and... and, and rebuked him for resisting her authority. Here's what he said. If princes exceed their bounds, madam, they may be resisted and even deposed. He wasn't intimidated. He knew he was standing up for what's right. John the Baptist was standing up for what's right. His eventual imprisonment and beheading. You know what? We're all part of God's divine timetable. It wasn't an accident that John the Baptist was beheaded. It was all part of a plan. God working out His purposes in our lives. Sometimes we think we tend to be a little arrogant. We tend to be a little prideful. We begin to think that we can act and we can do whatever we want and, and, and accomplish our own selfish ends. And we don't have to worry about God. That's not true. God has these things scheduled out before the foundation of the world. It's not that we're robots. We're not robots. That's a fatalistic approach. But to say that God doesn't have a plan and purpose and a, a time when things should happen, He definitely does. And we need to get in tune with that. Secondly, Jesus' ministry not only models <clears throat> following God's time, but it also 
model is following God's place. You look at verses 12 to 16. You know, nothing is accidental or circumstantial in the work of the Lord. Nothing. Jesus didn't go from Judea through Samaria and into Galilee because he was forced to do so because of Herod or because of the Jewish leaders or because he had nowhere else to go. That's not why he went there. He left Judah because his work there was finished for that period of his ministry. He was following, once again, the Father's timetable. He was following the Father's plan. He went through Samaria in order to bring light to these half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans. It says there that he withdrew. Has the idea of, of the thought of escaping danger, that he withdrew into Galilee. Well, why, why did he withdraw into Galilee? Because that was the next place where the divine plan of his father scheduled for him to be. Have you ever been on a trip that's so marked out and every little thing is, okay, this time you've got to be here, this time, you know. <coughs> it's kind of comforting in a way because you know everything's taken care of. But on the other hand, because of our flesh, it can become a little uh, problematic sometimes. It's like, oh, we've got to go already or what? But we're, we're forced to that time schedule. Well, Jesus didn't feel forced at all. He was, he was pleased to do what the Father wanted him to do. And by this divine determination, Jesus went to the right place at the right time. And when he withdrew into Galilee after hearing of John's arrest, it was not out of fear of Herod. He wasn't saying, oh, they got John, I'm next. I better run. Had he wanted to escape possible trouble from Herod, he definitely wouldn't have gone to Galilee. Because if that was his whole purpose... That too, Galilee, was under Herod's control. So he wasn't trying to escape Herod. He was just moving along his ministry the way the Father showed him. Jesus feared no, no man. In John 4, 1-3 it says, When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again <coughs> into Galilee. See, Jesus left the lower Jordan region of Galilee because of the Jewish leaders, particularly the Pharisees, <coughs> and not because of Herod. And even though Jesus had not begun preaching yet, his close association with John the Baptist made him suspect in the Pharisees and the Sadducees' eyes. And they had already rebuked John the Baptist, and they thought, hey, this guy's going to take over, and we need to get ready to deal with him as well. And those religious leaders really came to hate John the Baptist. But they were afraid of the people because John the Baptist had an incredible following. And they were afraid if they spoke out against John the Baptist that somehow these people would turn on them and they had a fear of the multitude. Jesus had no fear of their hatred at all, yet it wasn't in the time yet for that hatred to be unleashed on him. But when the time came, Jesus faced those religious leaders without a wince. And he really made it very clear to them, even with, with, with certain phrases that were a lot harder than even John the Baptist used. He knew that he was eternally safe from any danger that any man could devise here on earth. Because his faith, his trust was in the Father's plan. Now that little portion of Galilee, that little Roman region of Galilee... It's, if you look on your Bible map there in the back, it's, it's to the west, but it also extended up from the, the north to the south of the Sea of Galilee. Kind of like a lake over there almost. Um, 
And it was a very, a very uh, fertile land. Uh, a lot of edible fish from the lake, everything. It was a very agricultural kind of society there. And the Jews that lived in Galilee were a lot less sophisticated than the, the, the Jews who lived in, let's say, Jerusalem. Uh, the Bible says they even, if you were from Galilee, you even had a particular accent. Remember when they, they recognized Peter, they said, hey, he speaks like one of those Galileans. Matthew 26. Perhaps Jesus chose his disciples from that area because they would be less bound to all the Jewish pomp and circumstance that was part of the, of the Jewish culture in Jerusalem. See, in Galilee, it was more kicked back. It was, it was, it was easier to, to, to hold on to your Jewish faith. You weren't as orthodox, I guess you could say. You're a little more easygoing. Maybe you'd be a little more open to the gospel. And it's evident from the text that Jesus was in Nazareth for a while. And, and Luke tells of that. And at first, you know what they were saying? Oh, this, this, this is Joseph's son. This is, oh, we can't wait till we hear what he has to say. And Jesus was exposed, or when he exposed their real, true spiritual condition in the temple, when he stood up and basically told them what they didn't want to hear. All in the synagogue, it says, were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they would have thrown him over a cliff to his death if he wasn't able to escape. So after Jesus' hometown rejected him, just as they said he would in, in Luke, it says he came and he settled in Capernaum. Capernaum really means the village of Nahum, which, which speaks of compassion. And we don't know if it was because the town was simply compassionate or it was named after Nahum, we don't know. But by Jesus' day, it was a flourishing, prosperous city, Capernaum. It's here where Matthew, the tax collector, had his office, you remember. It's in this place that Matthew also refers to as his city. In other words, Jesus' own city in Matthew 9.1. Yet a short time later, Jesus would say in Matthew 11, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is where Jesus kind of did a lot of stuff. And yet, they turned their ear off to the gospel of Christ. And you know what? Even today, to this very day, it's a popular tourist attraction over there, Capernaum. But it's virtually uninhabited. uninhabited. There's nobody there. It's interesting. The Word of God holds true. And you say there, it says, it says that this, this quote from Isaiah 9, 9 1 and verse 15, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And it says it was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, of the heathen nations. See, all of Galilee was kind of a cosmopolitan. It was a bunch of people coming together. The Syrians were to the north and east. The descendants of the, the Phoenicians were to the west. It was even more of a crossroads than Jerusalem, which was isolated from a lot of trade traffic. And this famous trade route was actually called the Way of the Sea. And it went right through... Galilee on its way to Damascus to the Mediterranean coast. And so it's interesting when you, when you step back and you look at this, it's kind of a, a place that was a hub of activity. 
And here's where Jesus went. And the Jews that remained in Galilee after several kind of problems with, with leaders and things like that, the, the, those who remained there had been greatly weakened in their own faith, in traditional Judaism. And so it even refers to them as the Galilee of Gentiles. Kind of a mixed bag of people there. See, that's, that's why we, we can realize in John 7.41, the reaction of the Jews in Jerusalem to Jesus was what? It says, surely the Christ is not coming, is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Surely if, if the Messiah was going to come, he would come from Jerusalem. He wouldn't come from this seedy place known as Galilee. And when Nicodemus tried to convince the Pharisees that Jesus should be given a fair hearing. They answered to him and said, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That was their attitude. That was just impossible to them. And yet Matthew here reminds his readers that through the prophet Isaiah, long before this was ever even to take place, that a light would be dawned on those that dwelt in this area. And it's just kind of neat to see that God reaches out so not always those of, you know, the proud and the pure Jews of Jerusalem here, but he kind of reaches out to this mongrel, downcast society, this non-traditionally mixed multitude of Samaria and Galilee. They had the great honor of, of where Jesus really began his ministry. You know what? That's, that speaks true today. Christ came to this earth, the Bible says, to save what? To save who? Sinners. To say those who are sick, those who are needy. Jesus always went to those who were needy, those who were most likely to see their need. He went to them first. And he always expressed grace to them. But when he went to the proud, when he went to those who thought they had it all together, what did he do? He expressed the law to them. Grace to the humble, the law to the proud. That was Jesus' way of dealing with these people. And as this began to happen, we see here that, that Jesus was in exactly the place where he should be. Because it says, to those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, I mean, they were under a cloud. Upon them, it says, a light dawned. And that light was Jesus Christ and his ministry. Last thing we want to look at is, not only in God's time and God's place, but also Jesus was willing to share God's message. It wasn't his own message. It was a message that came directly from God. Well, what was that message? Look at verse 17. He says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, preaching was the central part of Jesus' ministry. That's what it was. And it remains a central part of the ministry of His church. At least it should. The modern day church, unfortunately, has taken the ministry of preaching and they basically delegated it to maybe 10 or 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. And you got all these other theatrics going around you, which I enjoy sometimes, but it doesn't leave any time for any preaching to take place. Because they think, well, preaching's boring, you know, nobody preaches anymore, you know, get up there, tell some jokes and tell some stories, entertain people. That's what, you know, that'll get people in the church. That's not what we're called to do. <laughs> we're called to follow the ministry of Christ. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. He began to proclaim a message that was from the Heavenly Father. He began to publish it. 
to make a message publicly known. That's what that means. Lenski, the commentator, says this, The point to be noted is that to preach is not to argue. It's not to reason or dispute or convince by intellectual proof against all of which a keen intellect may bring counter-argument. We simply state in public or testify to all men the truth which God bids us to state. No argument can assail the truth presented in this announcement or testimony. Men either believe the truth, as all sane men should, he says, or they refuse to believe it, as only fools venture to do. See, our, our ministry of preaching is not to, to argue and, and to kind of dispute things and reason and let's just have a discussion. No. We're to proclaim the truth of God. It's not my words that matter. It's God's word that matters. That's why when we come here on a Sunday or Sunday morning or in a Bible study, hopefully, you know, we don't sit down and just talk about some nice things that, that I think are meaningful to your life. That meaningful to your life. That, that's not what we do. We open up the word of God. This is the book of life. This is what we need to apply to our lives. And this is what we should be preaching from. Jesus preached his message with certainty. He didn't hem haul around. He didn't say, well, you know, you got your view. And, uh, you know. No, he came to preach. He came to proclaim the truth and he did it with certainty. He wasn't up there ready to suggest some possibilities. He also preached as one having authority. As one having authority. In Matthew 7, 29, it says that. The authority, as we preach, doesn't come from us. It comes from God's Word. What he proclaimed was not only certain, but it was of the utmost authority. See, the, the, the problem was in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and those who, who sought to teach couldn't teach authoritatively. They couldn't do it. Because they had so taken biblical truth that they knew to be true, and they began to mingle it with all the philosophies and all the vain thinking and even some of the pagan things, and they kind of began to bundle them all together in one. And when you do that, beloved, you can't teach with authority. How are you going to do that? If you don't believe in truth, you have no authority. And see... Their ability to teach with truth went out the window when they began to compromise the truth. Matthew 7, 29, it says, Jesus also preached as one having authority and not as their scribes. They didn't have any authority. They couldn't because everything was so watered down. You couldn't, you couldn't discern what was biblical truth and what was man's kind of own testimony and what man wanted people to believe. You know, we, have, we have to be reminded of that, that in the Christian life, if we would just take the truth of God and apply it to our lives and live by it, that's all God wants us to do. But so many times we get in a fix and rather than go to God's Word or go to God for help, we're going to all sorts of other people. They give you worldly advice. And then we sit back and scratch our head and wonder why nothing's working. Basically, the Christian life boils down to being obedient to what God has revealed to us in His Word. Jesus preached with certainty. He preached with authority. 
But he also, he preached what was commissioned by the Father. He didn't preach his own message. <coughs> he preached the Father's message. John 3.34, he says, For he whom God has sent speaks the word words of God. John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. Jesus himself said, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Later, he even gave testimony in John 12, 49. He says, For I did not speak on my own initiative. This is Jesus speaking. But the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. John 17, he says, Now when they had come to know that everything thou hast given to me is from thee, for the words which thou gavest me I have given to them, and they received them. See, and it's in Jesus' own authority that he sends us out as ministers into the world. John 28, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That's Jesus speaking. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See, a faithful preacher, a faithful teacher will proclaim God's certain truth. And they'll do it with an amount of authority. And they'll do it under God's divine commission. Not just because they feel like doing it or, you know, I mean, beloved, believe me, there are days I don't want to get up here and do this. I just don't want to do it. But you know what? It's, 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 I'm under the divine commission of God to do it. And what it would be to me if I were to say, I'm not going to do this today. Somebody else do it. What was his message? Repent. Repent. In closing, what does that mean? <laughs> it means, put it down there in your notes for you, it means to change one's orientation. To turn around. Uh, to seek a new way, rather than going the old way. See, the darkness in which the people lived was the darkness of sin and evil. No different than what we deal with today. That's what we we live in a society that's sinful, it's evil, it's dark. You don't have to go too far here on the peninsula to figure that out. Jesus was saying, this great darkness that has been upon you, because of the great darkness that is within you. See, we're not sinners because we live in a sinful place. We're sinners because we have this darkness in our heart. And what he's saying is you must be willing to turn from that darkness before Jesus' light can shine in you. And when we repent, we change one's orientation. It literally means to change the perception of something. A change in the way we see something. Really, to repent means to change the way a person looks at sin. And the way he looks at righteousness. You know, before I was a Christian, I would look at sin and say, Oh, that's kind of fun. That looks pretty good. Maybe I'll go try that. Maybe I'll go do this. It was enticing. After I became a Christian, all of a sudden I looked at sin differently. I looked at sin and I said, well, that's not right. That doesn't honor God. Why? I don't want to do that. I mean, my flesh wants to do it, but I don't want to do it. I want to honor God. So all of a sudden there's a new perspective. And to repent involves a change of opinion or a change of direction of the life itself. I asked you this morning, have you had that? point in time where your life changed, where your life just pointedly changed. You were going this direction, you were doing what you want to do, and God got a hold of your heart, 
You confessed your sins to Him. You repented. You turned back to God and said, you know what? I want to do what you want to do. I don't want to do what I want to do anymore. Do you see that point in time in your life? I'm not talking about a minute, a day, or whatever. I mean, some of us can say, hey, this is when it happened. This is when I made the commitment. That's fine. Not everybody can say that. But you should definitely see a transformation that took place and that continues to take place in your life if you're going to be saying, I'm a Christian. Because just praying some prayer or raising a hand or walking an aisle, that does not make you a Christian. Joining a church does not make you a Christian. Getting baptized does not make you a Christian. Doing good works does not make you a Christian. Watching Christian TV or Christian, listening to Christian radio does not make you a Christian. Helping people across the street, feeding people with, with grocery, all those things does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when the grace of God is revealed to you in such a way that only He can do it, and your life is transformed, and, and you're almost forced to turn away from your sin and turn to God. To repent is to have that radical change, that transformation of the heart and the will. And consequently, that plays itself out in our behavior. And I'm tired of people you know, claiming the name of Christ and then living like the world. All their priorities are messed up. Everything's messed up. You know, I go to church, I'm a Christian, I do this. Who cares? That's not the point. The point is, are you behaving in a way that is honoring Christ on a daily basis? Any one of us can come in here on a Sunday and paste a smile on our face and, and not cuss for a couple hours and put the cigarettes and drinking aside or whatever it is that, that, that is our vice and, and sit here and act like little nice Christians with our suits on and ties and say everything's fine. But what happens when we walk out that door? That's when the Christian life starts. Just as Jesus Christ's ministry had a beginning point, your Christian life starts when you walk out these doors. Don't come in here and try to play church. I'm not interested in that. I, you know, neither is God. God doesn't look at what you're doing. He looks at your heart. And if your heart's right with Him, you're going to desire to serve Him. You're going to desire to be with God's people. You're going to desire to pick up His Word more than just Sunday morning and read it and, and go to Him in prayer on a daily basis. And when you blow it and you sin, you're going to run back to Him and confess your sin to Him. Why? Because you know He's a gracious God because He saved you. That's the first demand of the gospel. Is the demand that repentance has to take place. The first requirement of salvation. The first element of any saving work in anybody's spirit, in the soul, is that of repentance. And see, this isn't something that you can just do on your own. The Bible says that God grants us repentance. If you're not saved here this morning... You know, don't think you're going to go out of here and, oh, I'm just going to do this and live this way. No, you're not. You're dead in trespasses and sin. And you need to cry out to a holy God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need new life. I need this light that Steve's talking about this morning in my heart. Because I know it's dark. I know it's wicked. Now, I'm, I may be not like the, the, you know, the drunk down on El Camino or the homeless guy or whatever, but you know what? i got issues. we all got issues. And God, I need you to touch me afresh. I want to confess my sins to you. I want to, I want to see you cause me to be transformed so I can not look at my sin anymore the way I do now and look at your righteousness in a whole new way. 
Acts 2.38 says, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul reminds Timothy that repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth. See, the problem with Israel was they rejected the truth. They rejected the whole Messiah. They had no repentance at all. And so when Jesus said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He really meant that. But they rejected it. So that whole thing had to be put on hold. Because most of Israel did not repent. They didn't recognize and accept the Messiah as king. Therefore, they didn't recognize and accept the promised earthly kingdom. It had to be postponed. That's why today we don't have a physical, literal kingdom. It's not here. Where is it at? The spiritual kingdom presently exists only in the hearts of those who have cried out to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and entrusted in Him as their Lord and Savior. He's not ruling the nation of Israel. And the world, as one day He will, He's not doing that now, but He is ruling in the lives of those who belong to Him by faith. Everybody's crying out for world peace, world peace, world peace. We need peace in the middle. Of You're not going to see any peace. The only time you're going to experience any peace is when you know the Prince of Peace. That's it. This external kingdom that God promised has not come yet. And yet the king of that kingdom indwells those who are his. That's why the Messiah, the Christ, now rules in the hearts of those who have received him as the light of men. Has that light dawned on your life today? Are you still in darkness? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray that, Lord, it's, it's not about just coming to church. Father, I pray that we get over that. Because you're so much over that. You see what's in people's hearts. And Lord, you desire us to cry out to you with a humble heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. If what this man this morning has said is true, Lord, I pray that you would make it real to me. I see it in other people's lives all around me, but I don't see it in mine. I pray that God would give you the courage to pray that prayer because he will, he will change you. He'll change your life. He'll set your priorities straight. And you'll never want to go back. Ever. There's nothing like knowing the Prince of Peace and the forgiveness and love that He offers. For us believers, I just pray that we would be reminded that God's timing, God's place, God's message, th those are ours too. That's a model that Christ laid down for us. I pray that when we're out there sharing the Gospel, that we're not making it mean something that maybe it's not meant to mean. I pray that we'd be faithful to what God has called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together.